Paul's writing back in this very first section to basically say, before we deal with anything else, we have to get on the same page about who we are, about what we're about, about how you were saved, what that makes you, how God is empowering you to live here and now. And so we're winding down this very first section uh, where Paul is talking about disunity in the church. And last week, during Anthem Anywhere, you guys were scattered all around Ventura and Ventura County. Uh, we were talking about the kind of divisions and disunity that, were, that was happening here in the church. And they were happening for a lot of reasons, uh, but one of the prime ones is they were lining up behind their leader of choice. And last week, what we learned is part of, part of receiving Jesus is choosing to submit your worldly wisdom to Jesus, to boast in him. And this applies to everybody in the church. Paul is saying even the leaders are not excluded from this kind of thing. So don't worry about being thought of as wise here on earth. Focus on being wise in the things of God. Focus about pursuing the things that matter to God. What the world calls smart, God calls stupid. And we have this contrast here between wisdom and foolishness that Paul is getting at, and it culminates here at the end of this section. And so we as Christians take up the posture of humility and obedience, knowing that we have not arrived. I don't care how awesome you are, you have not arrived. There is still work to be done. They're still continually needing to learn how to apply the gospel in every area of our life. And that brings us to where we're at in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And so if you have your Bible, open up there. The text is on the screen as well. And Paul says, picking up on the same idea that he's been getting at for the last four chapters, says this can be applied to myself as well, and it must be applied to you too. I have applied these things to myself, Paul says in verse 6, and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. So what things has he applied to himself? All these things, right? Everything he has written so far, starting from chapter 1 and verse 10, when he starts this section, he says, I have applied all of these things to myself. Being wise in God, not wise in the world. Being unified, being humble, growing in spiritual maturity. I've applied all these things to myself. And he says everything that I just said about myself and Apollos right in the couple of verses before applies to you two as well, right? That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That phrase for Paul, what is written, is a curious one. The phrase, what is written for Paul, always means scripture, the Bible. So for Paul, it would have meant the Old Testament, right? That is the written scripture he had at the time. For us, that is the whole thing, to not go beyond what is written in scripture. So in the first three chapters alone in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes his scripture of the day, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, all over the place. He's quoting Isaiah, Jeremiah, Job, the Psalms over and over again. And for Paul, his entire worldview and thinking is all built off the scriptures. Even when it comes in contrast to the culture he lives in. His entire life, his entire worldview is built on the scriptures. Paul's reality is defined by the Bible. The Corinthians... On the other hand, are getting sucked into the worldview of Corinth, 
What is some of the worldview of Corinth? When we say the worldview of Corinth, those of you who've been tracking with us, what do we mean by the worldview of Corinth? How are they processing life and reality and faith? What were some of the pitfalls in the church in Corinth? Yeah. yeah, factions, separations, divisions in the church for sure. Like we know from our Corinthians background, this is a sexually promiscuous city. We know they prized intellectual knowledge above everything else, right? There's this intellectual elitism that had captured the people in Corinth and the church in Corinth as well. And Paul's saying they're buying into that stuff. You guys, the church, are buying into what the world views as important, not what God views as important. He is, they're buying into their, their ethic, their morality, their worldview. And for Paul, he's contrasting himself with the Corinthians and saying, my life, my reality, my ethic, my morality is built off the scriptures. Is your reality built off the culture we live in or the scriptures? How you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you raise your kids, how you date, is it built off the scriptures or is it built off what our culture says is good and right and important? And Paul says, do not go beyond what is written. He says, you need to understand and ground your life and live your life by the scriptures. If you don't, you will be sucked in to your culture's way of thinking. If you are not bought into this as the ultimate truth and reality, you will believe something else is the ultimate truth and reality. We live currently today We live in this astounding moment in history where we probably have the most access any generation ever has had to the Bible in terms of study material, translation into different languages, even different translations in the same language, and we are the most biblically illiterate generation that has ever gone before. We have more access than any generation of Christian ever has And we are the most illiterate generation in Scripture there has ever been. Pew Research, a few years ago, did a study of American evangelical Christians, and they found a couple of really troubling results. Uh, One of which said, and this was a few years ago, and they said in the last year, 29% of Christians claimed to have been in contact with a dead person in the last year. 14% have consulted a psychic in the last year. 23% of Christians believe in astrology, and 22% believe in reincarnation. Does this sound crazy to you? As Christians, this is not everybody. They're not not pulling everybody of different faiths or backgrounds or religions or heritages. They were talking to American evangelical Christians. What is going on? Does this sound eerily like syncretism? Like the thing that has plagued the story of God's people in the Old Testament for hundreds of years. The problem with the people in the Old Testament is never, it was never Yahweh or something else. It was Yahweh and something else. Christians today are falling into the same trap of Jesus and something else. Jesus and psychics. Jesus and astrology. Jesus and New Ageism. Jesus and witchcraft. This is the church not being grounded in Scripture. 
not being grounded in the truth of Scripture and being influenced by the worldview around us. There are false stories in the world, and if we're not grounded in Scripture, we will get caught up in the things that are not true. And you may be thinking, I'm not going to leave here believing and buying into astrology. It never starts there. It always starts somewhere else. A sliding of the Christian sexual ethic. A different way of processing your calendar where busyness is a badge. A different way to spend your money to say, you know what, it's actually, I don't need to be generous. I need to hold back and hoard so I can buy this or that or save for this or that. It starts in those areas that seem okay. If we are not grounded in Scripture, we will buy into the cultural stories of our time and our place. And he says, don't go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor against one another. So remember what was going on here. Remember the first problem is addressing. What's the first problem Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians? What's the first problem? First problem. Someone say it louder because I heard like five right answers that were whispers. Division, there you go. Division in the church. Well done. People are dividing up behind their leaders of choice. And what Paul is saying is you are buying in to the worldview of our culture in a way that is creating disunity in the church. So what did the Corinthians prize above everything else? Intellectual elitism, the sophists that would travel to town and, and share their wisdom, share their truth, and, and cultivate disciples and their way of thinking. And that is bleeding into the church And they're buying in to what the world sees as good and right and valuable, and it is dividing the church. They're being divided over things that are at play here in the world. Paul observes something really brilliant here in 1 Corinthians 4. He says the root of division is pride. So they are dividing in the church because of the pride they have in their particular leader of choice. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. We have it figured out. Right, have you seen this happen within Christianity, different tribes? Oh, we really believe the Bible. We have it figured out. Oh, we believe in the Holy Spirit. He's the power for work and life. And they divide over all of these different things. Paul says, you're missing it. You're buying into the world's way of thinking that says you have to be defined by this one thing. You have to line up behind someone. There's no nuance. It is black and white. Paul says, I don't want that for you because you will become puffed up, built up in pride against one another in the church. God does not value pride. Pride is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something God seeks. He values humility. Peter says, clothe yourself in humility. If we are grounded in Scripture, we can resist the pride and the division and the worldview in our culture. We can If we are not, we cannot resist that kind of pride and that kind of division. Paul's saying, you look like everybody else. I can't tell you apart, those who are in the church and those who are not. He says in verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? I've asked this question a couple times before since we've started 1 Corinthians. As a a Christian, if you're not following Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. But if you are this morning following Jesus, should your life look different than those who don't? Yes, not a trick question. Absolutely, it should look different. And Paul says, for who sees anything different in you? Then he gives some reasons the church ought to be humble. What do you have 
that you did not receive. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did receive it? Paul's saying pride is illogical. Pride is my four-year-old son boasting about his blonde hair. What did he do to get that blonde hair? Nothing. It was given to him. He has no reason to boast. Pride is me boasting about my beard. What did I do except not shave for eight months? Like, I couldn't have come up with that on my own. And Paul's saying pride is you boasting in something that you did not receive. They don't receive that. Everything they have received is from God. There's no reason to boast. We're going to find out a little bit later that this church was incredibly gifted, like spiritual gifts, a spiritually vibrant church. Why would you have any reason to boast about a gift? Other than the boast in the one who gave it to you, right? Already you have all you want, he says. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He's being sarcastic here. Paul's being really sarcastic, and he's saying, you live in prosperity, church in Corinth. Economically, in comfort, ease. This church really faced no persecution at the time Paul was writing. They, generally, life was pretty good if you were part of the church in Corinth. And often, out of prosperity grows pride. Because everything is awesome. You have it all together. You have money. You have a house. Are you, look at all these spiritual gifts God has given us. We must have figured something out. And he says, you are like rich kings. You who think you have arrived. And he starts to draw out this disparity between his own life and the life of the people in Corinth. And he said, God has called Paul, Paul and, Apostle, Paul and Apollos and the other leaders, Paul's called him to be a spectacle to the world, reminding us and the Corinthians of Christ, who was also made a spectacle of on the cross. He says, we have been made a spectacle. Here's what our life looks like. Verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Okay, so to understand what's happening here, we need to understand a little bit of life in Corinth in the first century. Because Paul uses this really graphic and provocative picture in Greco-Roman culture that is totally lost on us if we don't know the background here. The background is whenever the Roman army would come home from war, they were always victorious, right? They come home victorious from the war. They would come under these arches in the city and the whole city would go out to greet the Roman army. And there'd be this long parade of the army coming back from war. And at the very front of the line were the kings, the generals, like those in power and status who called the shots. After them was the army that fought valiantly in these, these wars. And after them were the spoils of wars, the gold, the silver, the art, the whatever. They ransacked cities and brought it back. And at the very back of this processional, the very back of the parade, were the slaves, the, the prisoners of war that were captured. And they were tied up naked and dragged through the city. And they would be put in these arenas, right? In Corinth, they had an 18,000-seat arena. They would be put in there, and they would be eaten by wild animals for the entertainment and spectacle of those in power and status and authority who would watch to be entertained. 
You guys have seen maybe some of the like History Channel type moments of a, of a town like Corinth or, or gladiator type movies. These were the slaves, the prisoners of war brought back to fight for their lives, for the entertainment of the rich and the wealthy. And Paul says, who's Paul writing to again real quick? Corinthians. Christians or atheists? Christians. He says to the Christians, you're like the rich kings at the front of the procession. Myself, Apollos, we're like the slaves at the back, thrown to the wolves on display. And you're not only watching, but you're judging and mocking and critiquing and being entertained by their suffering. This is harsh. This is a huge rebuke to those who would sit on the sidelines and mock and judge and critique those who are in the ring. Paul's building this picture of the disparity between himself and the Corinthians. He says, I'm on display Apollos and I, we're we're men condemned to die, made a spectacle of. And he says to the Corinthians, you're puffed up in your pride. You think you're special. You have arrived. You're boasting in all of your arrivedness. They have all they want. They are kings. And he continues the comparison in verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ." We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor while we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. These two phrases at the end would have evoked a really particular picture for the people Paul was writing to. The scum of the world is literally the scrapings off your body after you come in from a hard day at work. Not like a hard day at work as a graphic designer sitting at your desk, but like out in the field, out on a construction project. You're sweaty, you're gross, you got stuff sticking to you, and it is the scrapings of all the grossness. That's what we're like, Paul says. We're the refuse of all things, right? Literally the trash that accumulates on a dirt floor. We, at, our, at our office a couple blocks down with the rain, our office has been flooding uh, under one of the doors. And uh, as, as the office has been flooding, like when, when your house floods, when something floods, it's not just water that comes in, right? After the water dries up, what's left? Yeah, the smell, dirt, mud, like leaves, bugs, like garbage, That's the stuff. He said, Paul says, we're like that. The scrapings off a dirt floor, the scrapings off your body after a long day. And both words and and Paul's time and place were metaphors for these gladiators, like the lowest of the low, the absolute bottom of the rung. They were thrown to the wolves, the refuse of the world, thrown to be eaten alive for the entertainment of rich people who are bored. Paul says, that's what my life is like. We're in the ring you're in the stands. We're sacrificing. You're watching. 
Rather than join us in the ring, Paul says, you have chosen to be wise and rule over us by acting as though you don't need what we brought to you, which is the gospel. Now there's a question worth considering after a text like this, a contrast of two different kinds of lives. Which life does our life look more like? Does it look more like Paul's? Does it look more like the Corinthians? Now, I'd like to say, ah, my life definitely looks like Paul. But chances are, if I'm honest, Paul probably looks a bit more like Jesus, and my life looks a bit more like the Corinthians. And I think you might be in the same boat as I am. Now, before we start feeling guilty about ourselves, though, I love that Paul anticipates that's what's coming next, that we're going to feel sorry for ourselves. Look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. Admonish, another word for warn. To warn you. Watch out. Don't fall into this trap. This is what is starting to happen. You are sitting and watching and critiquing and judging for your own entertainment. We are in the ring with dirt under our fingernails doing the work of ministry. Watch out. Don't let that continue. I'm warning you. That is not the way of Jesus. I'm not here to shame you or make you feel guilty but to warn you, to admonish you. Warn you about what? What has Paul been getting at so far? Dividing over the leader of your choice, these silly divisions that make the church ineffective in the kingdom of God. Looking for wisdom beyond the scriptures. They know it's got to be Jesus plus something else. Choosing to sit on the sidelines of mission and watching the people getting dirty and get slaughtered who are doing the work. The arrogance that can creep up from feeling like you've arrived, maybe from years and years following Jesus, or maybe just because you're really smart and intellectual and know how to engage with the scriptures well, watch out for the pride and the arrogance that comes from that feeling like you have arrived and have it all figured out. Watch out when your prime concern is how other people view you being thought of as wise by the world. Watch out for that. Verse 15, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is starting to flesh out this idea, which will come consummation much later in his letter, that the church is a family. You have countless guides. And he says, but I was like a father to you. You're like my children. This word guide can be translated a couple of different ways. Maybe tutors is another helpful translation. Uh, Guardians, uh, instructors is another helpful translation. Uh, Or honestly, babysitters is another helpful translation. Because this word was a specific kind of person in Greek and Roman culture. There's a specific name of a type of slave a wealthy family would have that would watch out for the younger boys and take them to school or take them to whatever they were doing, stays in the house with them. Like at, Until they reached a certain age of manhood, these boys could not leave the house alone. And they had this, this chaperone or this instructor and a lot of times, this particular person would have been, I mean, I mean, don't think the slave maybe in the classic image, but think of like a well-educated tutor, like maybe an au pair or a nanny or something like that, like a live-in tutor for your kids. This is something wealthy families would have. And he's saying, you have many of those kinds of people. 
many instructors, many guides, imparting useful things. But you do not have many fathers. You have lots of people giving you information, but no one helping your transformation. Lots of people teaching you things, and no one showing you how to put it into practice. Paul says, you're like kids with babysitters, instructors, but you don't have fathers. And I became a father. Sherry and I have three kids, still small kids, and, and we often have people come babysit our kids, and sometimes it's you guys in the church, sometimes it's other people, and we have very different expectations for you as a babysitter than we do for ourselves as parents. You guys know that? Like when we have a babysitter come over our house and watch our kids, Zach was over watching our kiddos the other day. I'm not expecting I come home and my kids are like fluent in long division or anything like that. Like I'm just hoping they're alive. Sorry, no offense, Zach. You do a great job. But I'm just hoping they're alive. Like my bar is really low, you know? Like I just want my kids to have a good time, maybe eat some food and be alive when we come back. However, there are different expectations for Sherry and I for our kids. Right? Our job is to form them and to shape them and to mold them into something. And Paul is saying, you have a whole lot of Zachs, a whole lot of babysitters, tutors who will have fun with you, who might even teach you something, but you do not have many fathers who are shaping you and molding you or forming you, helping you put what you know into practice or in the language of James, helping you be doers and not hearers only. He says, you are walking in dissonance between what you believe and how you live. All your knowledge and information and guides are contributing to your pride, but you're not getting in the game. There's no dirt under your fingernails. You actually think you're better than the people with dirt under your fingernails. You actually think you're better because you have it all mentally figured out, but don't actually engage. So Paul says... I urge you, then, be imitators of me. It's not saying learn something new. It's not saying go to seminary for one more class. Imitate me. Imitate me. To another church, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate how? How's Paul been describing himself so far? Humble, as a slave, servants, dirty, grimy, in the ring, doing the work of God, a spectacle thought of by the world as foolish. Imitate me. When Paul says imitate me, he's not trying to boss them around. I'm trying to say, look at how I'm living my life, imitating Christ. He's trying to model like a father would. Right? It's one thing for me to tell Calvin, my son, to do something or to like be kind to his brother or to talk to his mom nicely or something. It's another for me to actually model those things for him. Here's how you speak to your mom. Here's how you treat your brother and to model that. It's another thing for me to tell Calvin to say sorry to his brother. It's another thing for him to see me apologizing. Paul is saying, imitate me like you would a father. And he says, that's why I sent Timothy to you, verse 17, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Not my teachings, my ways in Christ. As I teach them, them being the ways, everywhere, in every church. 
I sent you Timothy. We think as the deliverer of this letter. He sends Timothy, not another guide, but someone to show you how to put the way of Jesus into practice. He says, some are arrogant. That's another word for like puffed up. Like a, that word was kind of an idiom for a bag of hot air, right? Some are puffed up. Some are just windbags of hot air. As though I were not coming to you. Look what happens here. This is like, Paul's giving the picture of like, mom and dad leave for the weekend. How are we going to find you guys? You guys were all in high school at one point. Mom and dad leave for the weekend. What do you do when mom and dad leave for the weekend? No, not you guys. You guys, but your friends partied and had people over, right? Yeah. He says, I'm coming to you. Some are puffed up like I'm not coming to you, but I'm coming to you. How will I find you? I will come to you soon, he says, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Right? Not just the speech and how they're talking, not just their intellect, but how they live their lives. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God is not only proclamation, it is demonstration. It is not just thinking the right things, but living a certain way. The kingdom of God is not about words, but power. Not about fancy speech, entertainment, wisdom according to this world, but about power, about how you actually live. The power of the cross, the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that is now in me and in you. The power of the Holy Spirit transforming people from the inside out. What's more important that I deliver a funny, witty, clever sermon with something that you can remember that is tweetable later, or that you are transformed by Jesus from the inside out. Quit trying to look fancy, Paul says. Quit trying to sound good. Walk this out. Actually live differently. James says, don't just be hearers of the word, but doers. And look at the imagery he attaches to that phrase. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. How ridiculous is that? Like it's the absurdity of this picture is meant to land with us. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves and, per, and perseveres, bearing, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That word blessed has so much weight and so much background we don't have to unpack, but he will go in the way of the Lord. And Paul finishes in verse 21. He says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with a love and a spirit of gentleness. I love the grace he's showing to this church. Like, they deserve the rod, right? This is a pretty messed up church. But he's saying, how will I come and find you? This is my warning for you. This is my admonishment for you. You have an opportunity to change. How will I find you? Like, if you're prideful, puffed up, arrogant, sitting on the sidelines, critiquing those who are doing the work of ministry, I'm coming to you with the rod, with discipline. He says, if you are humble, godly, teachable, pliable to the gospel, I'm coming in love and encouragement. This, I think, is an oddly relevant passage for you and I that we find ourselves in. Where many of us find ourselves on the outskirts of mission. 
on the outskirts of doing the work of the kingdom of God, feeding on the teaching of many people without actually diving into the pains and privileges of ministry. Paul is calling on the Corinthians to get off the sidelines and into the game. And the call on followers of Jesus is not to be critical spectators, but engaged participants in the advancement of the gospel. There comes a point when the amount of teaching that we receive, podcasts, books, radio, YouTube messages, Facebook sermons, Instagram quibs, whatever you find on Twitter, like overwhelms our readiness for action. And Paul's saying, get in the game. Stop watching. Stop critiquing. Stop standing by. And start imitating. A pertinent question for us as we wrestle with this text is what keeps us from getting off the sidelines? I think probably most of us in the room, unless I'm way off, don't want the kind of life that Paul's describing here. We're like, okay, we don't actually want that, right? We don't want to be the kings on the sidelines critiquing, mocking, judging. Like, we, we don't want that. If, if you do, we have other issues to deal with today. But we don't want that. But what keeps us from doing that? Because chances are that probably characterizes a lot of us in the room. So it keeps us from doing it. Uh, I have a few reasons. I'm sure there are many, many more. But I think a few that, that plague our culture uh, and plague our city. And the first is this cognitive dissonance that he's getting at. That you believe something and that you live differently. A disconnect between what we believe and what we practice. Barna, uh, they're like another research firm, they're actually based here in Ventura. They did some research over the last year, uh, particularly in the area of sharing faith, like kind of evangelism or, or sharing the gospel. And they found a, a couple of things in that study. And one is that 94% of millennial Christians, 97% of all generational Christians, 94% of millennial Christians said the most important thing that could ever happen to someone is they come to know Jesus. They're surveying Christians. They say, this is the most important thing. I don't know who the 6% are. They're crazy, but definitely not you guys. 94%, almost every Christian says the most important thing that could ever happen to someone is they come to know Jesus. Do we believe that? Yeah. Say it like you mean it. Do we believe that? Yeah. Okay, well done. So we're in the 94%. And the Bible agrees, right? The Bible gives us our mission in Matthew 28. Go into all the nations and make disciples. Teach them, baptize them. Right? And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, how will they call in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in whom they have never heard and how will they hear without someone preaching? preaching? This is our mission. The best thing that could happen to someone is they come to know Jesus. Of that same group of people, Christians, 47%, almost half, said it is wrong to share your beliefs with someone. What do we do with that? How can Jesus, someone knowing Jesus, be the most important thing that could ever happen to someone and almost half of those people say it's wrong to share your beliefs with someone? How does that work? Someone explain the math to me on that one. 
It doesn't make sense to me. How can almost every Christian say that knowing Jesus is the most important thing that can happen to someone and almost half say it's wrong to share that message? Or in the words of Paul, how are they going to hear unless someone tells them? Our culture tells us don't offend, don't stick out, don't risk your reputation for this Jesus thing. Faith is a private, personal thing. Keep it to yourself. You don't want to disrupt the workplace or cause strife in family relationships. I believe many of us are paralyzed by this cognitive dissonance. We believe one thing and we are not living something else and it keeps us on the sidelines because we can't reconcile those things. Second reason that keeps us on the sidelines is feeling, and I use that word feeling on purpose, feeling unequipped. Feeling unequipped. Some of you in the room use this as an excuse. Some of you legitimately do not believe God has gifted you. Some of you need a swift kick in the pants. Probably a lot of you need to be told you actually, the Bible says you have everything you need for life and godliness. You have the Holy Spirit. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. You don't need anything else. You don't need one more class. You don't need one more sermon. You are ready. You have everything you need right now to do what God is asking you to do right now. In that same study that Barna did, the least, you want to know what the least important factor was in non-Christians exploring more about Christianity, the, le- the bottom of the list, the thing they cared about the absolute least for non-Christians exploring Christianity was, quote, the Christians I know were more articulate about their faith. On the bottom of the totem pole, the bottom of the list of priorities for non-Christians who would be compelled to explore Christianity, the thing they cared about the least was Christians knowing more. Christians being articulating their faith more. The things they cared about more is people who would listen to them. People who would genuinely take an interest in their life. Who would spend time with them. You are equipped. You have everything you need to do what God's asked you to do right now, And even if you had more, non-Christians wouldn't care. You don't need to be more articulate about your faith. Third, self-centeredness. What if this costs me getting off the sidelines? What if it costs me time? What if it costs me money? What if it costs me friends or promotion to get off the sidelines and do the work of the king? Closely related is a fear of commitment. I parsed this out because Zach said I should, and it was really good. I parsed this out because think about what happens, for instance, if you share your faith with a coworker. You're stuck with that person. <laughs> right? You're now sacrificing time. You're now sacrificing your own schedule, the things you might want to do because they are going to be very needy. They're going to have lots of questions. They're going to want to do lots of exploring of this. And guess who they're going to? They're not coming to me. They don't care about me. They're going to you. Our fear of commitment makes us hide in isolation because we don't want to add another thing to our calendar. We don't want to be committed to another person or another thing. So we say it's just easier not to. 
Next, something that keeps us on the sidelines. Can't go without saying laziness. Yeah, some of us are just lazy. (laughs) This is hard. My dad's an electrical engineer, and he says electricity always takes the path of least resistance. That's us too. We always take the path of least resistance. If it feels harder, we'll go a different way. And guess what? Getting off the sidelines is hard. It's not easy. It's not easy. And finally, what I think actually probably plagues us most is distraction, or what Jesus calls the cares of this world. Being concerned with things other than the kingdom of God is probably what plagues you and I the most. I think it is no accident. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom, the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added. It is no accident Jesus had a lot to say about your priorities in life. Come follow me. I have to bury my father. The, bed, the dead will bury the dead. Come follow me. Over and over and over again, people's interactions with Jesus, especially with the religious, was all about priorities. Follow me. Seek my kingdom first. We are too often concerned with things that don't matter. Remember what Terry was talking about a couple weeks ago? Like there are a couple different ways you can build gold, silver, precious stones, these eternal, long-lasting things, or wood, hay, straw, the stuff that tips over really easily, that don't last. So, the city isn't interested in the church. That's a given in our time and place. This is a, recent, a new development, like sociologically, but it is a kind of a given now. Uh, And the church, Christians, are more than ever hesitant to share their faith, to get off the sidelines, to be on mission, to do something, because of the worshiptainment culture that we, as the church, have cultivated for the last hundred or so years. It is much easier for you to sit and watch me do my song and dance every week than it is for you to actually do something. Would we agree? Yeah, this is the way it is. So what do we do? How do we as a church combat this stuff? How do we as a church get off the sidelines and actually do what the Bible calls us to do? There are a bunch of different ways. Once again, my reasons for being on the sidelines, I'm sure I left out a bunch of stuff. I'm sure I'm leaving stuff off here, but I want to help enlighten you guys for what we as a church do to combat those things and to actually push us all towards the mission that we are on. So there are a few ways here at Anthem where you can get off the sidelines. And the first, and I think kind of the lowest barrier of entry, is to be known. Stop being isolated. Stop pulling yourself away. Be known. Join a community group. Really practical. Join a community group. That's how we do life together. (coughs) Community groups are a place where you are known and loved because the gospel is real. Where you're actually walking out the one another's together. You can't do that here. Even in a small group like this, there are too many of us to actually walk out the the one another's, to actually be known and actually be loved, to actually be cared for and to shepherd each other. This is one of the ways we push back the hyper-individualism of our time and place is to choose to be known and loved even when it's uncomfortable and maybe it costs us something. Another is just to serve. Pick one Sunday a month and go hang out with our kiddos. Do something that doesn't directly benefit you. This helps. This helps break the self-centeredness of our culture that says do whatever makes you happy in this given moment. Do something. No one likes setting up chairs, unless you're Joseph. No one likes setting up chairs. It's not a spiritual gift, setting up chairs. They gotta be done. 
surf. Do something that doesn't benefit you. Uh, I'm gonna do, uh, here's a really unpopular one. Give your money away. Now, the Bible says give to the church, do that. Give to the needy, give to the poor. Give to the homeless, the marginalized, the oppressed. You can't be at Laundry Love, fund Laundry Love. How great was it if Ben would come up here and say, we don't need another dime again, we're funded. There are poor and needy among us in the church and there are poor and needy among us in the community. The Bible says to be generous. Be generous with the church, with each other, with the poor amongst you. Break the hold money has on your heart by giving it away. My favorite piece of advice comes from my father-in-law, Kev, uh, and he says when he was teaching a financial class for us a year or two ago or something like that, and he was saying, start somewhere, anywhere. The problem is not the amount. The problem is you actually letting go of your money. More happens to you by giving away $5 a month of your money than thinking about and hoping about and planning for the day when you can give $1,000 a month. Unclench the hold money has on your life by giving it away. There's nothing more fun. We do something called Celebrate Generosity every single year where we get together with our family of churches in the fall. We take all the money that comes in for a whole week. We call you guys to fundraise, to give, to save differently. We give it all away. We don't see a cent of that. It goes right out our doors. It goes to places in Thailand and Nepal, to new churches around the world. Give it all away. It's the most fun thing we do all year. There's such a joy in giving stuff away. Hey, another way you can get off the sidelines is join Penn at Laundry Love this week. Don't be paralyzed and plagued by like indecision and like paralysis by analysis trying to decide what you should do. Just show up and pay for people's laundry for a couple hours. Talk with people, offer to pray with them, get to know them. Uh, another way you can get off the sidelines, get out of Ventura. Not like forever, I like you guys, but like get out of Ventura. One of the things we're embarking on this year, we talked about a little bit on, on Vision Sunday, is we're partnering up with a number of churches from around the world to help plant churches around the world. Sherry and I are going to London in a month to gather with other pastors to figure out how we can plant more churches into the nations. One of the dreams we have is that everybody in our church in the next couple years goes somewhere. Get out of Ventura. There's something about your life that changes when you see a different culture. George is on a plane back. We all know George from Ethiopia. He spent a week in Ethiopia cracking people's backs and sharing the gospel. He's a chiropractor. He just doesn't, like, we're, not, we're not a church about cracking backs, but he's a chiropractor. Sharing the gospel. Hundreds of people coming to faith. George does this four or five times a year. You guys, nurses, doctors, join him. They always need more help. I'm not qualified in any kind of medical way. I want to go see what George is up to. I can be a bouncer. I can coordinate people in line and help make appointments. Get out of Ventura. We have to preach the gospel really poorly for us to focus on our family in our city. The gospel takes us to the nations. Go somewhere. Be impacted by what God is doing somewhere else in the world. Get off the sidelines. My last way is a shameless, shameless plug for Alpha. It is a great way to get off the sidelines, to be in a room with people who are far from God and disconnected from the church, exploring the Christian faith. 
When I discovered Alpha for the very first time, uh, I, I discovered, I saw the impact it was having in, in post-Christian cities like Portland and London, and a church we're connected to up in Portland started doing Alpha, uh, and friends of ours there were using it. Uh, this tool and this idea of Alpha to connect with people who are far from God and disconnected from the church, and it was really profound. I said, gosh, if they're doing it and it's working and they're seeing fruit, we have to give it a stab. And we tried it for the very first time over the summer, and we saw immediate fruit from it. It was an effective mission for us here in Ventura. And so I just actually wanted to share uh, a quick story from that church that we're connected to up in Portland so you can hear some of what they experienced when they did Alpha for the first time. Go ahead, Matt. I live in the West End of downtown Portland, Oregon. I lead a church there called Bridgetown Church that we planted seven years ago now. We really believe that church isn't just a people, it's a people in a place. So for us, that's Portland, Oregon, in this post-Christian, secular, pseudo-spiritual moment. It's therefore all about people in the flesh, in relationships together, in a neighborhood, in a city, coming together around the gospel. Really the heart and soul of our church, to see Sunday as a launching pad to get people into their neighborhood, around a table with a neighbor, coworker, friend, to talk out the gospel of Jesus. We were at the spot where we were leaning really hard into mission. But what we discovered is that people were really good at getting into relationships with people far from God, but it was really hard to actually open up in-depth conversations about the gospel. It's one thing to invite a neighbor over, but it's another thing to talk about substitutionary atonement, right? Or the resurrection of the dead, or historical evidence for the life of Jesus of Nazareth, or the Holy Spirit. And a lot of our people just never could get there. And that's where Alpha for us has just been this genius kind of way to help our people take the gospel to the city, because the city just doesn't want to come to church anymore. Post-Christian culture is a reaction against Christian culture. The assumption isn't just that they don't know the gospel of Jesus, it's that they know it a little bit and they're hostile to it. And Alpha for us is beautiful because it creates space to have these in-depth conversations about things that are really hard to just bring up with your barista or your neighbor. People have already built relationships, are already doing that through their community, in their neighborhood or at work. And now here's a place around a table to come together, take those relationships to the next level and talk in-depth about the gospel. When I first heard about Alpha and I heard that your job is not to answer questions, you don't defend the faith, all the red lights in my pastor filter went off. Like, no, you can't do that. But I think in our culture, part of feeling loved is feeling heard, feeling felt. That safe place creates an environment for people to vocalize what they believe. And most people have never actually vocalized and verbalized many of the things that they're actually living by. So when they do, often they like realize, oh my gosh, that doesn't make a ton of sense. And then they hear the gospel of Jesus and it starts to make more and more sense. And so I think authenticity once again creates just a space for the gospel to feel as real as it actually is. That's what I love about Alpha. It's not really a formula. It's just community around a table with the gospel of Jesus and an openness to the Holy Spirit. That is the mo If that's a formula, it's the most basic New Testament formula there is. But you put those components in close proximity to each other, community, food, gospel, Holy Spirit, and you just watch what happens. If you guys have been a part of Alpha before when we ran it, 
uh, you've seen firsthand, like the impact it has on people and just giving people a, a space and environment uh, without kind of the pressurized atmosphere that comes around these faith conversations to actually process through this stuff and have them. So we started Alpha again, our, our spring season of Alpha uh, just last week, and we're walking with people from all different backgrounds, people who have uh, messed up faith backgrounds, no background at all in, in the church, uh, people who are searching, who are processing, uh, even Christians, those of you here in the church. And, and uh, I would encourage you, if you've never been through Alpha, it is a great time to, to start and to try it out. And so what I wanted to do actually as a really tangible way to tee up an opportunity to get off the sideline is to share with you a couple of different ways to help with Alpha. And the first is to pray. Uh, we believe if anything of significance is going to happen, it's going to be birthed in prayer. Like we believe prayer changes reality. There's power in prayer. We are a praying church. And so the most important thing you can do in things for like Alpha and things like Laundry Love and other things we're doing is pray for the Holy Spirit to change people. Uh, but also, there's a couple of tangible ways that you can help. One is to provide a meal. Uh, we eat together. Something about food is magical. It breaks down walls. It creates friends. It builds community immediately. There is something magical in the theology of food. I don't know what it is, but it is astounding, and you can help by providing uh, a meal for Alpha. You can also invite someone to try Alpha. Chances are you have somebody in your life who might benefit from an opportunity like this. We're in week two. It's a great time to invite somebody in. Uh, we also are going to run this in the fall as well. Our plan is to do this a handful of times a year. And so have on your radar those people God is putting in front of you and how you can extend an invite to them. And the last is to just try it out. If you've never done Alpha before, try it out. Give it a shot. If nothing else, you can see firsthand one of the major ways that we as a church are getting in front of people who are far from God and disconnected from the church and journeying with them, building community with them, and making Anthem a safe place for them to explore Christianity. Those are a couple ways we're doing as a church. Laundry love, alpha, serve, give, join a community group. These are all ways that you can get off the sidelines, but I, wanna, I don't want to limit that question to just those things. And so I just want to ask you guys, even as we end, the band's going to come up in a second and lead us in response, but I just want you to take a moment in quietness and just think, how can you get off the sidelines? Maybe one of those things for you, maybe it's something else. Maybe God's stirring something in you. I trust, as I'm talking, the Holy Spirit's doing at work in you guys. Like if he's not a futile effort up here, I trust he's speaking to you guys and forming you guys. How else can you get off the sidelines? How else can we not be a church that goes the way of our culture where 20% of the people do 80% of the work? And how can we be a church where 100% of our people are in the game and off the sidelines? How are you gifted? How are you called? What steps can you take today to start doing and not only hearing? Band's going to come up. Go ahead and come up right now. And I'm going to pray for you guys in a minute, though. I want you guys to sit with those questions. Like, how can you get off the sidelines? How is the Holy Spirit speaking? So take a minute. Close your eyes, even if that helps, to be less distracted. And ask, how are you called? How are you gifted? How can you not just be hearers, but doers? Take a moment.
Father, thank you for the gift of your word to us. We're thankful for it on on days when it's encouraging and uplifting. We're thankful for it on days where it stings. Today stings for me. Holy Spirit, you are doing things in me. I trust you are doing things in our church as well. Thank you that you continue to grow us. Thank you that you're exposing areas, Holy Spirit, this morning where maybe we're on the sidelines and where we can get in the game. Help us to not be distracted or lazy. Help us to not be self-centered or to live in the paralyzing state of believing something and not living it out. Help us, Holy Spirit. We need you. The simplest of all prayers in the Bible, Lord, help us. As we respond today, would you do work in us? Bend our hearts to be more like yours. Give us courage and boldness to make changes, to actually be formed by your scripture and your Holy Spirit to live differently today than we did yesterday and differently tomorrow than we did today. We thank Jesus that this is possible, that we can in confidence approach the throne of grace and ask for help thankful for the Holy Spirit inside us. Amen.